Hello everybody and welcome to the Billy Moore Podcast and today's special guest is DJ Mike Nola. How are you mate? I'm alright mate, I'm, all, I'm good, I'm good. Um, sun shining, a bit cold but generally I'm alright. See Mike, you, you, you brought dance to Merseyside to Liverpool back in, well, way back when now wasn't it? Well it, was, it, it, was, it wasn't just me, it was a combination of me, Andy Carroll and James Barton. I was a resident DJ in the state in the 80s with Andy and we were, we were playing 80s music, you know, like The Smiths, New Order, um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Dead or Alive, U2, Simple Minds. But both of us were aware of house music and we wanted to somehow bring house music in. Mm. And then out of the blue in August of um, 1988, James Barton said that he was going to put an acid house night on, mm. on a Monday. And did we have the records? So we said, oh, yeah, we've got the records. Yeah. We'd been playing the Odd House track, but it wasn't really what our crowd wanted. But this Monday night, I didn't know how it was going to go. And there was nobody there at half ten. And suddenly at 11, the place was full. And that's when I realised, you know, this is the future. Yeah. And by um, November, all three nights were now house music. So house music, it took us, I don't know, six weeks maybe to convert the crowd to house music. Now, obviously not everybody wanted to change. Mm. So those people that didn't want to change had to go somewhere else, like Macmillan's or the Mardi Gras. Mm. And, and we were exclusively acid house from November 88 to November 89. Unfortunately, the... the the state lost its license then. Yeah. Because I don't know if you're aware of it, but the boss had realised when the place was full and he'd bring the gate down. But then the bouncers were letting people in through the side door and taking money off them. And I wasn't thinking straight. I should have said to the oh, you've got a problem. Um, what the licensing police did, they just decided the place was very overcrowded and yeah. out of control. And they obviously knew there were drugs involved, but yeah. they used the fact that there were more people in than there should have been to attack the license. Now, Bernie Stott, who was the owner of the club, did employ a full-time head bouncer on a salary. Um, this, is the, this is what, the late 80s? What's his, what was his name? Um, Panama Jones. Panama Jones. Yeah, and Panama should have spoken to those doormen and said, stop it, but he didn't. Hmm. And I should have... You see, if the owner had had closed-circuit television on, on the fire doors, he'd have seen it for himself. But I, I cursed myself for not saying to him, look, you've got a problem. Because I was having such a good time, they're all dancing on the tables and giving it this. And, you know, middle of November, we were gone. Yeah. 89. See, I, I first with the state, probably, like, it was the late 80s, I told you before, 80, 88, it was... 89, and it was like the best times of my life. You know, I remember standing outside in the queues when I was on Dale Street and the queues were round the corner. Well, I, um, I'd had a bit of a girlfriend in Manchester when I was at Manchester University, and she came over to, to go to the States. And we went for a Chinese meal, met Derek Hatton. And when we got to the States, there was a notice to say that the, the club is now closed until further notice. Yeah. So it was, I mean, you can imagine I was the resident DJ in the state ballroom for five years yeah. from November 84 to November 89. And to suddenly find that I was no longer a regular, you know, DJ. Out of work, it, Well, I was out of work and I, I never got nothing off the boss. No. There was no, here's a couple of hundred quid for being a good DJ for five years because the man's pathologically mean. Mm. Um, so... I think he paid me for the weekend um, that I didn't work, you know, the last weekend, as a, like a weekend's notice, and that was it, yeah. gone. So what was some of the experience you had? Because it was a bit of a, it turned into a bit of a violent kind of a club at the end, didn't it? Didn't well, well of... what happened was, if I got there in, in, in 84. Now, while I was at university, which was 82, 83, yeah. I went to the state as a punter but on a Thursday. So Thursday night was very trendy. 
a lot of arty people there, including people who were in groups like Holly Johnson and Pete Burns. Yeah. But on a on a, a Saturday in particular, it could be violent. Very rowdy, like very rowdy. And I generally, for example, you know, as you well know, the state the toilets are downstairs in the basement and the last thing I was going to do on a Saturday night was go to the loo mm. um, so I go out of the fire door and in, into the um, into the alley because it, I wouldn't feel safe and I generally didn't leave the DJ box on a Saturday night now Friday particularly by sort of 86 the crowd were technical college you know Liverpool college some of them were a bit underage, 17, 17, 18, 16, 17, 18, but very peaceful. Mm. So, you know, there was no, there was no trouble on a, on a, a Friday, but the Saturday night crowd in the, in the mid-80s could be a bit dangerous. Um, but once we went acid house, then there was no problem. Was that all the ecstasy time? Everyone yeah, was, I mean, once, once, once there was... Well, I mean, everyone was ugly shoulder and lovely. I mean, I, I believe that... Uh, the football hooliganism of the 1980s was quashed once the lads started going the match on a knee. Mm. You know, football violence was gone. Um, I was never really a, a much of a football supporter because as a teenager, I played rugby and um, I used to go to what Southport Rugby Union. You know, rugby was my, my game. Mm. Not that I was any good at playing it, but you know, I much preferred it to, to football. And it wasn't really until 98 when I had a new girlfriend who wanted to watch the World Cup. Mm. I thought, oh, yeah, we'll do that then. But you did have, you had, you had like a massive part to play in the, uh, the dance decade. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, like I said, I, I was the DJ that, or one of the two DJs that brought Acid House to Liverpool. And the promoter was James Barton. And James would only be 17 then, I think. Mm. Um, and How then, old was you then back then? So you must have been. Well, I was born in 1951. So uh, in um, in 1988, what would I have been 36, mm. 35? Um, I'll have uh, 1988. I'll have been 37 in the November. So when we started Acid House, I was 36, and when I discovered house music, I was in New York in 86. I, I would have been 34. So, what happened just briefly with uh, with the, with the state? I graduated from Liverpool University in 1984, and a week later I got a telephone call from a promoter, and she wanted me to DJ in the cavern. Yeah, the replica cavern had just opened. It was the summer of the Garden Festival, and they wanted a DJ to do six lunch times, uh, twelve till three, because at that time, you know. The license finished at three and it had to be closed till five. Mm. And there'll be a live band on one till two. And I played music 12 till one, two till three. And it was a lot of 80s stuff. Yeah. Bunny Men, Smiths, um, Simple Minds, but with some psychedelic stuff, you know, to, yeah. to give it... The, 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 the you, you've got to know your music, haven't you? And you, yeah, well, and you, you play to the crowd as well, don't you? Well, there, I mean, there wasn't it, largely it wasn't a dancing crowd um, in the cavern. They they went there for the live music, and of course, um, the replica cavern is much bigger than the original cavern was. Mm. And there's a big bar area where people tended to go, unless the band was on. So, I'm in the in the cavern. It's maybe August. And Frank Cookson, who was the DJ from the state, mm. came in and said, look, I'm getting married. I'm, I'm going on my honeymoon. I want you to stand in for me for two weeks in the state. So that would be September in um, 84. Then shortly after that, when he came back, um, he had a row with the owner of the club over how much he got paid to, for doing a student night. Frank's argument was that he deserved the same number of hours playing the same record, so the money should be the same. Mm. And it wasn't going to be shortchanged just because it was a student night. Yeah. So he said, basically he said to Ben, he said, oh, you can fuck off, I'm off. I think, I think he'd had enough 
um, so we landed the gig because I I worked with Andy there from 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 the get go, because um, I you know I didn't want to be the only DJ covering the whole night. There's it, no fun. Yeah. You know, if you if you sharing the night with another DJ, you can go and have a dance hall. Yeah. I used to go to where the burger bar was uh, near the entrance and chat to girls and so forth. You had a um, you had a little bit of an experience in the state. You mentioned that I remember meeting you on the set of Liverpool Narcos, and it was actually in the state that they were filming, and it was um, a friend of ours, Lee Garris, who sadly passed away you now. You know, he was a good friend of ours. Um, mentions you, and he spoke highly of you. And when I finally met you, I was, I was quite excited to sit there and speak to you because you had some really great uh, stories to tell. And one of them was when you were DJing, and someone produced you. Yeah, I'll let you tell a story. Right. Well, when we switched over from the eighties music, which included bands like In Excess and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Um, Dead or Alive, Echo and the Bunny Man. <coughs> Once we became Acid House, mm. then those records were gone. I didn't even have them with me in the DJ box. And one night in 89, I, I can't tell you exactly when it was, a man came and he wanted an excess and he was one of a group of people that used to stand at the end of the bar and they wore suits and mm. they, they were coming to the DJ box to snort cocaine. And um, when I told them this man I didn't have that record with me, I couldn't help him. He produced a gun. Now he didn't point the gun at me, but I'm assuming it was loaded. <laughs> and it wasn't just any gun, it was a Magnum 44. And um, I told him that, uh, you know, since he was a man with a gun, I was prepared to go back to Southport to get the record. And we'd get a taxi. But he'd have to pay for the taxi and he'd have to come with me. And that completely flummoxed him. Uh because he didn't know what to do. Because <laughs> I, I, was, I was giving him what he wanted, but there was a heavy price to pay, which is a journey to Southport and back. But the, the, the coda to this experience, I said hello to him in the all-nighter, the yeah. Quadrant Park all-nighter, and he said to his girlfriend, don't speak to him, he wouldn't play my record even when I got my gun out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been scary, though. Well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I, I, I didn't imagine that he was going to actually point the gun at me and fire it. Um, but more it, of a showboater. But it, you know, it, it just to have a to be out in a nightclub and to be, to have a Magnum forty four, um, and pre presumably had in some kind of shoulder holster. Yeah. I mean, they're big guns, you know. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, that was an experience. It, it's it's. I don't know what anybody else would have done. So we must have been getting on because in excess, you know, didn't the, the lead singer of them die? Some kind of weird way. Well, yeah, he, he, he's from, from he, Australia, he, ain't he? He, he died in the eighties. I couldn't tell you. I mean, yeah. Look him up in Wikipedia. Yeah. But I mean, we, there were there were two or three in excess tracks that the audience liked. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, the other thing is this: that, that, that um, we celebrate the, the, the state nineteen eighties two or three times a year. We do a night where we, when I say we. Yeah. Me and Andy Carroll and Frank Cookson, who was the original DJ. But we don't call it a state reunion. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know what the reason is, the night's called The Killing Moon, which you might know is an Echo and the Bunnymen track. And we did one um, 27th of November. Um, we had about a couple of hundred people in. Obviously, mm. the crowd are a bit older. Most of that crowd are in their 50s. And we celebrate that music. Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, Echo and the Bunny Men, Smiths. Um, funnily enough, the, 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 the stuff that we played in the 80s, including um, the Beastie Boys or Run DMC, yeah. that wouldn't go down now. So some of the music that we played in the 80s, particularly the hip-hop, nobody wants to hear now. No, not in this current time, though. It's more like the likes of like Kanzi Stanton and Billy Ocean that, that are timeless you know, you've got the run the DMC and all that, they're all, you know, they're, they're no one's interested either no more. Yeah, I mean, but obviously in, in, in the 80s, 
some of that hip hop was very popular with our crowd, particularly the Beastie Boys. Mm. But it, it, I don't play it now. Having said that, the next time we do a Killing Moon, um, I'm going to play Fight for Your Right to Party by the Beastie Boys. See how it goes down. Say it, yes. yeah. See how it goes down. But um, was that called Fight for Your Right? I, can't I mean, they were. I mean, the Beastie Boys were, were. You know, I went to see them. They were supporting Run DMC. It was '87 yeah. in Manchester, and they were really good. So was you competing with any other clubs back in the day? Like, uh, was it uh, the one in Manchester? What was that called? Um, well, the Hacienda. Yeah, the Hacienda. Well, what's interesting? I went to America in 1986 July. I went with my wife. We were there for three weeks in New York, mm. and we were staying with the family out in uh, Flushing Meadows, which is in Queens. Yeah. And I said to my wife, look here, the new music seminar is on while we're in New York, so I'd like your permission to have three days off to go to the seminar. And I said, hey, you can come with me if you want. But she said no. So I went to the new music seminar. Mm. It's only, it was basically daytime, but there were events in the evening, nightclub events. And um, there were a lot of people there from England, DJs. And there was a DJ symposium. Um, so it was a room full of DJs and there was a panel. Mm. And um, interestingly, I said to this panel of DJs, one of whom was a Hacienda DJ, what about CD? And they were all adamant that there was no place for CD yeah. uh, in DJing. And I said, well, it's early days, but I think you'll find in, in time, the CD will displace the 12-inch single. And I'm of the opinion, and this was prescient, that in the future, DJs might well use a computer to mix their music. Now, nobody thought, oh, they must have thought I was crazy. Yeah. But of course, now... 50% it's, it's, of DJs. It's virtual DJ, and I was plug and play. You plug yeah, it absolutely. in. Absolutely. I mean, I, I use Tractor. Yeah. Um, I, and funnily enough, obviously, I've, I've got a control. I have um, an Apple MacBook Pro. Yeah. But John Kelly started to use <coughs> the Pioneer CDJs instead of the controller. Yeah. Um, Most clubs don't have got mixers now, and all you do is you plug it in to, to your laptop, and you've got your virtual DJ online and then you've got your playlist and you know your two tracks going you know, one for karaoke one for you see i mean as a dga i can do other things besides house music because i'm older i mean i was there in the 70s with, with, when funk and disco yeah. jazz funk so with the laptop i can and a, a memory stick with the right music and i can do a northern soul night or i can do a 70s funk and disco night at a push, I could do a reggae night. Yeah. Um, Why at a push? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know the reggae that well. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to. I've got Appreciate a load. It, yeah. I've got a load of CDs. Um, so my reggae was all on vinyl, yeah. and it was all forty fives. Then an African woman who I met on Facebook wanted a memory stick with Roots reggae, and that was twenty eighteen. And I went out and spent a hundred quid on reggae CDs, ripped them to MP3 and put them on a memory stick and blasted them off to Ghana. She was made up. Um, but I don't really listen to reggae now. So mm. it, it, to do a reggae, I'd have to get all the CDs out, work, work out what was going to play. So what kind of, like, what, what's your, like the old school music to you, what does that mean? Like, you know, the dance music? Because like, like, for me, it was like Black Box. It was, yeah. Uh, it was Technotronic, it was Alison Limerick. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was all that stuff, wasn't it? I mean, there was... Um, if we go back to 88, 89, there was obviously Voodoo Ray. Voodoo, brilliant. Um, brilliant yeah. Do, do, do. And then there was... I can't remember all the artists <coughs> just off my head, but there was... There was um, there was some house music that had rapping on as well. We called it hip house, came out of Chicago, and I like that. Um, but I can't remember that without going through my record box. I can't remember the names of the Would artists. You still, have you still got all these 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 records? Like, yeah. Wow. Now, 
I mean, over the years, I've had some records stolen, obviously. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, I still have them. But of course, when I go out and DJ now, oh, I can't. it's in my wallet. I was going to get the memory stick out. Yeah. I mean, I I played on um, the 27th, two, two days ago. I did a two-hour set, and it was all on the memory stick. And it, it wasn't... I didn't have to mix everything individually because I created the set out in 20-minute segments. So mm. it's... So what kind of music have you got on your stick? Well, all that on the stick is basically quadrant-part music. Wow. Because it was a quadrant-part reunion. So you'd have, like, the likes of, like... Cotton Park, Scouse House. No, I never played to any Scouse House. No. I've never owned any. Never liked it. No. So what we're looking at is Italian stuff like um, JJ Tribute, Asher. And, um, I, you know, I mean, I, without, it's, it's so hard to remember without the records to, to give me. I actually, when I do that set, they're all written down in a book, so I know where I'm up to. Um, there was well, Italian House was very popular in Quadrant Park. Things like I'm All Right by Catherine E. Mm. And um, like I said, JJ Tribute Asher. Now, what's interesting is, I told you before, I was a lecturer at the Uber College. Yeah. <clears throat> and my um, subject was electronics. And I taught on the BTEC National Diploma. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, my students had taken over the Students' Union and they wanted to put a dance on. And they wanted to have it in the state at Christmas in 1989. So I said, it's not going to happen because I'm fairly confident that the police will take away the license. Yeah. And probably the owner will voluntarily close rather than go to court and lose the license. You know, if he, it looks better from his, from the point of view of the authorities, yeah. if he agrees to close, and then he hasn't lost his license. So I said to them, <coughs> "Excuse me, we'll do it at Quadrant Park." I said, "It's it's it's nearby. It's in Bootle. I know who the owner is, although I didn't know him personally. I'll ring him up and make an appointment, mm. and we'll go down. I'll introduce myself, and then I'll." push you lads forward and you know it's your night you negotiate the deal yeah. but I said what you need to do is advertise it in the Echo you know Mike Nola from the state um, house music in 1980s we got nearly 1300 people in on a Thursday Wow! and that was the end of December in um, it's like the 20th of December something like that in 1989 and at the end of the night the, the manager a man called dave call said to me would you be would i be interested in doing a house night on a thursday so i said yeah um he said well come in after christmas come in between christmas and new year and we'll talk so i went and i got there and there was nobody in it was about 300 people in a venue that holds over 2000 the quadrupart was on its arse basically mm. um and what was it? Nicky D, I think, was the DJ. I don't know if you've heard of him. No. He's, he was famous for being on Blind Date. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool lad. He probably a bit older than you. I can't be exactly certain. But the music that he was playing owed a lot to the, the state 1980s. It wasn't as it wasn't as Billy Ocean and um, <coughs> that sort of. You know, 70s, 80s soul disco. It wasn't that mostly. It was, you know, New Order and simple mm. talking heads, which really surprised me. Talking heads, yeah, wow. So I arranged that we do the night. I negotiated a fee, which was more than I was getting at the state because I wasn't paid properly at the state. And it was the 11th of January, 1990. And I told the owner and the manager to advertise it in the Echo, you know, rave at the Quadrant Park, Mike Noel from the State Ballroom. And we got 1,300 people in on the first night. Brilliant. So what was interesting, it wasn't long before I realised that were, there were young kids in there selling drugs. Because I go to the loo and they said, do you, you want to buy this or that? And I went to their owner and I said, look, you've got a problem. Because... 
young kids are openly selling drugs in here. And if you don't do something about it, the police will close you down. So they said, well, what, what should we do? I said, write to the police. Tell them that you've been informed by your DJ that there's a problem mm. and ask them to come down and talk to you about it. So they came down and there was a raid. It was on a Thursday night. <laughs> yeah. And um, the, the police came in mob-handed. They brought a load of drugs with them to make sure that they found something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they brought in cocaine and heroin, but nobody was using it. Why would anyone have heroin in a nightclub? I know. So anyway, funnily enough, it was on raid. It was on the BBC News, this, yeah. this raid. And when I got into work at the Hubert College, my boss, Ron Baxendale, said, oh, I thought you'd be in custody now. <laughs> Your club was... Yeah. I said, well, actually, gone. as it happens... I don't do drugs, mm. um, which it wasn't entirely true. But I, I, I certainly didn't, I didn't do drugs when I was in the quad because I couldn't DJ. When I'm on a tablet, my head goes west and there's no chance of me DJing. That's the problem with the DJs in this day and age and back in the day when they were using a lot. You know, Lee Butler has his demons. He was, um, he openly speaks about how he... Um, how he drank a lot and took a lot of drugs at the time, mainly cocaine. So that must have had a, you know, an impact on how you played or how you. Well, I mean, I speed and cocaine, I can DJ on. Yeah. Because basically they're just a central nervous system stimulant. But ecstasy, you know, it it takes away your ability to think logically. Mm. And <laughs> playing a DJ set is a bit like playing chess. Uh. You've got to be a few moves ahead. You don't want to know, you know, when it, this record gets... To, oh, I know about this, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, it, it's, you know, so... Now, I did try and DJ on this tablet a couple of times. What I did, I put all the records in the order I wanted to play them. Yeah. And I had John Kelly there, so if anything went wrong, he could just... But I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't, nah. Yeah. You know, ex ecstasy was something to do on a night out at the Hacienda. So, I mean, just going back to the Hacienda, obviously the Hacienda was to Manchester what the state was to Liverpool. Yeah. But they started a bit sooner. The Hacienda, you know, they, they started at the end of 87 playing Acid House. And actually, around about Easter time, in 1988, there was a feature in the Sunday Times magazine about the Hacienda and house music. And the owner of the state, Bernard Start, he said to me, what about house music? And then we had a conversation, which was basically, we've got house music. Andy and I are keen on house music, but when we play it, it doesn't go down very well. It's not what our current crowd wants. Mm. But, you know, well, you know, but it was, it, we never thought... I've never had much of a business brain. It never occurred to me to say to Bernie, we'll, we'll put an acid night on, on a Monday and see how we go. Yeah. That's, you know, because we could, have, we could have started that, you know, in the early summer of, of 88. But they made a killer. I, I, but it just never occurred to me. And, and, of course, because I was a college lecturer, I really only wanted to DJ on a Friday and Saturday. Uh, although I have done DJing on weeknights, but, you know, to go and, and teach a class when you've been up all night, oh, yeah. it's not a lot of fun. Um, funnily enough, on a Monday, um, Bernie Start ex experimented with a gay night. Now, I can't tell you what year it was, but I think it was 87. And it was on a Monday. And he said to me, I need you to come in. They've got their own DJs, but I want you to be responsible for switching the equipment on and making sure that they don't damage the equipment. And you can do the lasers. And I didn't run, I don't know how many nights, so it didn't last for long. But the thing that surprised me was how close their music was to what we were playing. Mm. They played a few tracks which were more obviously gay, what used to be called High Energy or Boys Town. But mostly they were playing Talking Heads, Simple Minds, U2, pretty much what we played, The Smiths. Um, and on a Tuesday, you, had, you used to have a late start that year in the college, so it wasn't too bad. But now, 
I find I can I can function with just a couple of hours sleep or even not miss a, a night's sleep out. Yeah. But when I was younger. Because yeah, you're 70 now, aren't you? We were yeah, talking I, about I was that 70 before. on the 20th of November. You've got a son the same age as me. Well, older. Well, well yeah, my son's 49. He'll be 50 on the 5th of February. Wow. Um, and um, he's not as good looking as me, but... Uh, <laughs> for me, I mean... Uh, same, same birthday as me, sister, uh, as me brother. Same date. I've got, I've got a new iPhone. It has the face ID. It's something that I find deeply peculiar. Um, so, just going back to the Hacienda. I first went to the Hacienda in 87. And that was before house music. Yeah. You know, and they, they had a lot of live acts on. And the DJ would, would play a lot of funk and jazz funk, which was different from what we were doing in the States. And it was a great club, but it, it was, you know, it was half empty. Mm. We'd go on a Wednesday because we couldn't go Thursday, Friday, Saturday because we were DJing in the States. Um, and when I was in New York and I was at the New Music Seminar and they were talking about the Hacienda and it was a big deal, I actually said, but nobody goes. And I think they were a bit flabbergasted. But I said, I've been, you know, to the Hacienda. It's, it's not busy, mm. which it wasn't. I mean, they... It wasn't until house music came along that you had the likes. I think it, going back as well, you had the likes of Mr. Schmidt later on, didn't you? That was the that replicated other nightclubs in Liverpool. Oh well, when we started to do the Quadra Park reunions in two thousand and six, there's a lad called Ian Ian Kenyon. It was his idea, and he built a website, Quadra Park, and he created compilation CDs like twenty tracks. He basically just nowadays it's called a vinyl rip. It's where you record the twelve inch record and create a digital file. Mm. And he he basically created the website to promote the Quadrant Park reunion events and sell these CDs. And one of the events, and I can't remember what year what month it was, was at Mr. Smith's in Warrington. And I'd never been to, to Warrington or to Mrs. And it was, you know, it was good. And last year I was talking to a girl uh, on Facebook Messenger, Juliana name is. She's about my son's age. And she said, was there a night at Mr. Smith's or did I imagine it? I said, no, it, 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 it happened. Mm. Yeah, but the, the first Quadrupart reunion was at, at um, I forget what the club was called, in, in uh, Croxteth. And it, the club was very similar to the quad, the same architecture design. Croxteth, yeah. Can't even imagine what that. Um, and we had over two thousand people in, and it was March two thousand and six. Mm. And I remember we came out and it was snowing. Um, but it, I mean, there were there were so many people in that they weren't expecting. They drank the bar dry. But I just can't Literally. remember what the venue was called. Um. And, you know, we basically fell out with this Ian Kenyon. What he wanted to do was to put the quadrunes on the back burner mm. and do something else. He called it back to the old pool. And we said, no, no, no. We're the quadrant part DJs. And if you don't want to do the quadrant part, we'll do them ourselves. Yeah. We don't need you. And he was really offended, but it was my idea. I said, yeah, but we were the DJs. Anybody can have an idea, but you know. Put it into action, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to have a quadrupart reunion, you've got to have the quadrupart DJs on. Yeah. So, I mean, that was two thousand and six. It had never occurred to me, again, to to, to create a quadrupart reunion, um, but you know, it, it was, Ian Ken co-promoted the events with John Kelly, and. Um, I think we did four or five at this venue in Liverpool mm. and one in uh, Mr. Smith's and one on the ferry on the Mersey. Brilliant. It's, it's, it's just incredible having that kind of uh, experience. Now, one of my difficulties as a, as, a, as a college lecturer, I didn't want to be in the Quadrant Park, you know, clearly intoxicated on drugs, because my students, or many of them, would be there. 
So I used to go to the Hacienda on a Wednesday when Mike Pickering and John De Silva were DJing if I wanted to, to take a tablet. Um, so did you have a, what was your, um, your, your experience with drugs like? What was that? Well, because of my age, I first did drugs as a teenager and the, the drug of, that I used was amphetamine. And in those days, it, there were slimming pills, that, you know, what, what were called Dexies and Blueys and Black yeah. Bombers and Green and Clears. And these were basically be stolen from chemist shops. And amphetamine was, was, provide, was um, prescribed for slimming because it's an appetite suppressant. Yeah. And also for an antidepressant, you know, mixed with phenobarbitone. So my first experience of drugs was basically that. And I went to a club called The Twisted Wheel, which is in Manchester. And I was 17, I got a handful of pills in my pockets. And I didn't honestly think I'd get in. Because when I was 17, I looked about 12. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, they're never going to let me in. Anyway, that paid me money, I was in. Uh. Went to the toilet, took my drugs. Um, changed out of my suit into, into um, you know, jeans and a, um, a denim shirt. Put my suit in my carrier bag, put it into the cloakroom. Um, that scene at the Twisted Wheel Club, which, which was basically up tempo soul music, became Northern Soul later on in the 70s. Yeah. But amphetamine was a very, because it was an all night event. So you can't go to an all night event, dance all night if you've not had something to keep you going. No, I, I remember, you know, my, my, my journey. Back in the eighties, uh, and and the ecstasy kept us. It was just like, you know, you go into these like these warehouses and and down the south end into the garage and the supermarket and all these after parties and you know they were there till five six in the morning. Yeah, see, I mean, I the other thing, I mean, it's interesting. When I was about seventeen or eighteen, I smoked pot for the first time. Yeah, and I basically threw a whitey. And I think one of the reasons was because what I was smoking was strong and my body hadn't really experienced pot. And it wasn't good. You know, to, I was uh, hallucinating and I threw a whitey and I was thinking, this can't be right. Um, you know, I was anxious and a bit paranoid, felt dreadful. You know, drugs are supposed to be good, but the, the bottom line is cannabis has never really agreed with me. No. And for that reason... You know, if somebody builds a joint and they pass it to me, I'll have a couple of tokes, but often I won't inhale it. it just cannabis was never, you know, a, a drug that I, that agreed with my body. But I like speed. Um, and I'll, I like to, you know, the, the experience of dancing all night. Yeah. And back in the day, with, if you take the right amount of speed, the top of your head used to tingle. And... Um, it's not as good as ecstasy, but it's, you know, it's, it's basically the, the um, dancing. It gets your blood pressure up. And if you've had the right amount of amphetamine, it's, it's quite a buzz. But, of course, the real problem is that the next day when you feel like shit, and that actually can go on till the middle of the week. If you take, you take a lot of amphetamine, it could be Wednesday before you feel normal. Mm. And then before you know it, it's Saturday, you might... Back at it again. So, what was life? What was life like growing up as a kid? Where was it? Was you born in Southport? I was born in Southport. I grew up in Southport. Um, my dad was an electrician. Yeah. So we were basically blue collar working class, but he would work overtime every weekend and in the evening. So we had more money than the average electrician's family would had, because my dad was prepared to work the overtime. So, you know, we had lived in a nice house. It was rented from, from Auntie Mabel. Um, I went to the grammar school. Um, I was interested in music from, from age 12 and, you know, buying records. I also had an interest in, in, in what's called amateur radio or ham radio. And I got a license, a transmitting license when I was 16. Um, I started to go to youth clubs when I was about 13 or 14. And... Back then, there were, there were no DJs, but there'd be a record player and 
people are bringing the records and put them on. Mm. And I was into sort of soul music by the age of 14. Um, so the music that I liked wasn't necessarily in the pop charts. Um, but pretty quick, because of pirate radio, I realised I wanted to be a DJ. So by the time I was 16, 17, I had a setup at home with two record players and a mixer. So when I, I'm playing my 45s, I could go from one to the other. There was no mixing in those days, but it was just, mm. you know, it meant that it, the music was continuous. There, there wasn't a gap where you had to take the record off and put the next record on. Um, it was when I was 17, I was in a club called the Kingsway Casino, which was in Southwold. And the top floor, it was three floors, the, the gambling casino bit was on the middle floor. The bottom bit was a cabaret and a restaurant. And back then, which was 68, 60, 69, 69, groups were the main thing. And as the DJ basically just played before the group and after the group and when the group were having a break. And the DJ they got on when I went was called Bob Stewart. And Bob Stewart had been a Radio Caroline DJ. And he spoke with an American accent, but he was from Crosby. <laughs> Got I. <laughs> and I think he realised that, <laughs> you know, a, a Liverpool accent wouldn't be ideal, but he knew how to do what, what's called, a, you know, American accent. A, a North Atlantic, you know, sort of a cross between. Yeah. And uh, I just, uh, he was playing that music from the Twisted Wheel. Those were the records he was playing, what I called Rare Soul. And I just said to him, you know, I, I fancy doing this as a job. How do I go about it? He says, well, look, I'm leaving shortly to go to Radio Luxembourg. Tell me your name and I'll put your name in the hat. And, you know, I can't give you the job, but I, I can recommend you. Yeah. And he did. So I got th this job at the Kingsway Casino. I got a bit of a record collection together. Um, but I was only 17. I wasn't 18 for another couple of months. And the man who was in charge of the, the floor manager wasn't for paying me. So he did say, you know, you can be the DJ, but I'm not paying you. You've got to prove yourself first. And of course, I never did get paid. And obviously, he there was a, an allocation for a DJ that he was just keeping. Yeah. That was yes, you were getting paid. So. so what went wrong is the other DJ, because we worked as a pair, me and a guy called Phil. And Phil got it up and his head to shave his head. Well, nowadays, loads of people shave their head. But in 1969, it, it didn't go down well. No. And we turned up, and the, 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 the bouncer says, you can't come in. Now, what I should have said, I said, okay, I'll come in on my own, because I haven't shaved my head. And I said to Phil, I'll carry on DJing until your hair grows back. Yeah. But I, we, we, I just walked away, and that was it. But it was, it was quite a prestigious gig. And, um, you know... That's what got me started. Now, um, you asked me what it was like growing up. The real problem for me growing up was because my dad was never at home, I didn't have much of a relationship with him because I never saw him. Mm. Um, but my dad hated what I would call pop music, whether, you know, whether it's soul or funk or the Rolling Stones. My dad hated that. Yeah. And there was an issue because what I'd done, I'd put the system together. I'd got a fairly big amplifier, 25 watts a channel, which was quite a lot in 1968. And two big boxes with 12-inch speakers in that had come from a bingo hall. So although it wasn't exactly high fidelity, it was loud. Yeah. <laughs> and so I basically, at age 16, realised I needed to leave home. So I went to college in Fleetwood to train to be a radio officer, ship's radio officer. Yeah. Now, I could have gone to, um, what's that college in South Liverpool called? Um, yeah, Riverside. Yeah. Riverside yeah. yeah. They did the course there. I could have got the train. But I needed to leave home. I needed to get out of the house. I was fed up of my dad. Mm. So when I got to Fleetwood, because I was only 16, I had to live in digs. In other words, you know, yeah, yeah. Full board. And the landlady's daughter was a bit older than me and she'd been 
at the Twisted Wheel. So she had a little collection of those records that I liked. And I got my own collection, but there wasn't a lot of overlap. We had different stuff. And I, you know, sit in the front room with her and we play these records and, you know, talk to me about going to the wheel. She didn't go to the all night. She used to go to the Sunday afternoon sessions, which was, you know, more popular with people who were under 18. Her name was Connie. And eventually, about a year later, a year later she said, do you want to buy my records? And she she realised she'd grown out of them. Mm. So I bought her, her record and that <coughs> bolstered my own collection. Um, but, you know, in, in the late 60s, Fleetwood was pretty backward, <laughs> you know. Still is. No. I, I, I hated it. <laughs> um, and also the landlady wasn't as good a cook as my mum. Yeah. You missed out on the own cooking as well. Yeah, but it, it did get me out of the house. Um, but because I started DJing while I was at Fleetwood Northern College, I quickly realised that the last thing I wanted to do would be stuck on a ship, sending and receiving Morse code. So I never went to sea, although I you know, passed my exams. And of course, that caused a rift with my dad. So I, <clears throat> he said, you either go to sea or you leave home. I said, oh, well, I'm off. That was it. And that was it, I was gone. And then your journey into DJing began. And, and the, the journey as a DJ began. But before I became a full-time DJ, I got my girlfriend pregnant. Mm. So in October 1971, I got married. Um, and in February... Of so you're only 20, 51, 60, yeah, 20 years old. Yeah, my son was born. And at the time... Fathers were just starting to get to be present when the baby was born. But it wasn't expected. You had to ask. Um, now, if a dad isn't there, they want to know why. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I, was, I, was, <coughs> excuse me, I was there when my son was born. And then in the beginning, um, my wife and I were living in one room studio or yeah. really a bed sit and the landlord had made it clear you know you, you, you can't continue to live here if you've got a baby so well, don't worry about it my mum has sorted me a flat out but I can't move in till January and it was actually a maisonette three bedrooms over a shop and I lived there from January 1972 until July 86 it's a big flat it was as big as a three, you know, three bedroom semi-detached. Yeah. But it was over a shop. Um, <clears throat> the way it worked, my auntie Mabel, who was sixty at the time, had just got married, and she moved in with her new husband, and they'd been friends for a while. But he was married, and that prevented them getting married. His yeah. wife was disabled, and she passed away, and then Mabel got married. But Mabel was able to give us furniture. Um, from her house to furnish our flat. So that's how you started? So it, was, it just worked out right. Brilliant. Brilliant. But so the, the other thing is, um, my dad was born in Waterloo and my mum was from Bootle. So growing up, we used to spend weekends in Crosby with my dad's family, yeah. his Auntie Mabel and his sister, Auntie Pat and their kids so I always had a contact with Liverpool oh, a lot of Liverpool people will say yeah but Crosby isn't Liverpool is it mm. <laughs> but it is to me you know once you get to Thornton you're in Liverpool yeah. in my opinion um, so you know I started to, to go out in Liverpool um, as a teenager but not to clubs you know, but, but you, I go to Frank Hesse's to bought a guitar or mm. I go to NEMS or whatever it was to buy records. Kelly Music, no. Is it? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So then, <clears throat> 1972, there was, uh, there was a, a big mobile disco in, in Southport called Radio Doom, Radio Doom Good Guys. And there were two teachers who'd been to Edgehill College. And one of them 
had got married and his wife wanted him to stop being a DJ. So the other one said to me, do you fancy taking over from Jeff and run Radio Do with me? So that's what I did. Um, from, from January 72 until April 78, I ran the Radio Doom Disco. Brilliant. And we did colleges, universities, youth clubs. So back in the, the early to mid-70s, youth clubs were very popular. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And, you know, we could put a gig on at Netherton Youth Club and get a couple of hundred kids in. And generally the girls wanted Tamla Motown and Soul. And generally the lads wanted glam rock. You know, T-Rex, David Bowie, Gary Glitter, The Sweet. And um, I was doing that 13 nights out of 14. So you've, had a, a, you've had a life full of music, haven't you? Yeah, well, I mean, for, for those years, I was a professional DJ. But there wasn't a lot of, a lot of money in it, though, in those days. Mm. I, I couldn't tell you what that money would be worth now, but we would charge 25 to 30 pounds for a gig. And we'd turn up in a transit van with um, amplifiers and speakers and light show and everything. Yeah. And But there wasn't... I don't know what, how much 25 quid would, would translate to today. Um, but um, it, I wasn't rich as, as a professional DJ. It's, uh, it's a bit it's sad, like, isn't it? Because some people have made millions from it, haven't you? Yeah. Unfortunately, you didn't, which is... I mean, I didn't get to make a lot of money as a DJ until Acid House came. Yeah. You know, it was really 1990 when I went to the Quadrant Park... I knew what I was worth, and I asked for a realistic amount of money. Yeah, and, and you got it. And I got it. But they're bringing all them punters in into them clubs, they're coming to you, aren't they, to listen to what you're playing? Well, I mean, as I said to you earlier in, in the discussion, when I went into the quad after Christmas in 89, the place was virtually empty. And the quad had had its day. You know, in the eighties, they'd been the Hitman and Her had been to the quad, and they were yeah. they were playing that eighties soul funk groove, very commercial. Um, yeah, because that was on the telly, wasn't it? Saturday night. That yeah, Saturday night. I used know, to quite like the it. Wiggy in that way, it? yeah. Um, the, the, the wig. What's his name? Um, I can't think of his name now. Uh, the the Peter Waterman. Peter Waterman. He yeah. he actually was um, a record producer and. and He'd been a Northern Soul DJ, yeah. but he, he, PWL, was... Um, Who did he have with him, that girl as well? Pete Waterman and... Um, uh, um, what was it? Michaela, was it? Michaela, Michaela Stratham. Yeah. And I quite liked the Hitman and her. And you, you, you know, I'd finish work normally. Because, and, and it'd be on the telling. I mean, just a, a, um, a point that's worth mentioning is until... I don't know what year it was, let's say the mid-90s, or maybe a bit later, nightclubs closed at two. Mm. And that used to frustrate the life out of me. It just seemed so unfair. When I knew that if I, for example, I went to Copenhagen with my wife to, to stay with a friend there, and we went out to a disco, it was until six in the morning. Yeah, there's no messing about, is there? And I, I just felt it was really unfair that our kids in, in, in England were expected to go home at 2 a.m. Mm. Now, Christmas night, <clears throat> I did a gig at a venue that's called 24 Kitchen Street, and um, it was a quadrant part music, but it was on till 4 a.m., and the audience were, were, were kids, really, under 25 mostly, but they all stayed till 4 a.m., and I looked at them and I just thought, you know, you don't know you're born. We put this night on for you and you can, you can dance to the music your granddad played. It's true, isn't it? Samless, though, isn't it? I know. And um, they were all there till four. Now, Monday, we did a quadrupart reunion. That was only on till three. Right. We found with our crowd, you know, they start to, to drift off at two. So there's no point in, in playing till four if there's nobody there. Yeah, <laughs> no. Um, so just going back to my career... I left Radio Doom in 1978 when I was headhunted by um, a community media 
organization called the Merseyside Visual Communications Unit. And what they wanted me to do was to build a recording studio, four-track studio, and bring local bands in, you know, to make records or make recordings. And they had the physical studio already set up, two rooms and a, a glass thing between the two rooms that they had microphones but they didn't have everything yeah so i said well we need a four-track tape recorder we need a couple of two-track reboxes and we need some you know decent studio monitors and i, I built a studio there and then at the time i was also going to college one day a week in preston and did my high national certificate in electrical engineering electronics so i used to take a day off in the week and work at the weekend. So I'd have two days off, um, say Tuesday and Wednesday, to go to college. But I wheedled my way in to be the DJ at Preston Polytechnic. So over the three years that I was studying for my high national certificate, I was also the college DJ. So I went from, you know, Radio Doom to... So I was in the same place three times a week. Brilliant. Um, no, no, two times a week, really, Friday and Saturday. So what is it that you do with yourself these days then, mate? Because you've had, I'm listening and like, like wow, you're like, you know, your career's just been constantly like, like in, in and out of clubs and well, when I, doing gigs. When I, I left the teaching profession in 1996, and the reason was... <coughs> Because they were bringing in a new contract of employment that took away five weeks of the long summer holiday. And there was no extra money involved. And also, they wanted exclusivity. Yeah. So if I was working at the Uberg College, I couldn't be a DJ. Yeah. Unless they gave me permission, which they probably wouldn't. <coughs> So I made a decision to leave teaching and had a bit of a rough ride, but eventually I ended up working for the Inland Revenue in 1999. So there was a three-year period when I was doing a bit of this and a bit of that. Van driving, you know, office furniture, a bit of block paving, but I was determined not to become un unemployed. Yeah. And I worked for the revenue from August 99 until November 2011, when I was 60. And I made a decision at day 60 that although my pension wasn't like going to be a lot of money, I was going to retire because yeah. I'd had enough. Um, I worked in, in the office for 12 years. I wasn't involved with tax. I was doing tax credits. It started off working families tax credit in 99. Oh. And then in 2003... It became national tax credits or new tax credits. Um, and I did that for 12 years. But it meant that when I was 60, I got 12 years of teacher's pension. And when I was 60, I got 12 years of civil, uh, no, 12 years of civil service pension plus 11 years of teacher's pension, okay. which was like eight grand, which is not a lot of money. But I made a decision because I had an inheritance, so I had some capital, and I thought, no, I, I want to retire. So I'd basically been retired for 10 years. Yeah. But 2012, I was in India for six months, and when I came home, my son, he does block paper, and he was doing Stephen Gerrard's house. So I went there, and we did Stephen Gerrard's um, patio and driveway, it was basically, you know, labouring. It wasn't hard. Because mm. we had to take up what was already down. And my son didn't want to throw it away. He wanted to sell it on. So we created metre cubes of these little uh, granite pieces. And then the next year, I worked for my son for five months for the whole of the summer, labouring. But, you know, I got to the end of September and I said to my son, I'm done for. It's done for now. You know, there's nothing left. <laughs> nothing left. But you know what, right? It's just been really great speaking to you. But what, we're coming to the end now. So what I, what I always say 
at the end of a, a podcast, you know, is there any words of wisdom? What would you say to a young Mike Nola coming through the doors of life? What would you tell him? What pearls of wisdom would you have well, to offer? I'd, the first thing I'd say to any would-be DJ, don't do it for nothing. I've done it for nothing, and it doesn't get you anywhere. Know what you're worth. Um, th there isn't been much else I could I could offer. You That's know. it. <clears throat> See, the world of D a DJ now is so different. All the latest music is a download from a website, and you pay ninety nine p for a mix. Yeah. Where in my day, <coughs> everything was on twelve inch singles, and they were expensive. And say back in 80, 80, 89, there was no shop in Liverpool that sold that music. So I had to go to Manchester on the train and go to Eastern Block Records. And to have the right records, it was expensive. Mm. You know, the, the world of the DJ today is very different. But um, the main th advice I give, d d don't make the mistake of doing it for nothing. That's it. Don't make the mistake of doing it for nothing. And with that, Mike, thank you. Thanks for coming along. Yeah.